Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi, this is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. Today, we're going to talk about hydrogen electrolyzers. With a number of favorable policy incentives, we really expect to see this market take off over the next decade. And this is going to be around the world. From the U.S. to Europe to China, the conditions are right for growth. But let's think about how much money is this actually going to require and what technologies are the front runners, And also, what will be the emerging fuel source to make all of this hydrogen? And will it be more locally produced or shipped around the world? And a lot of other questions. So on today's episode, I get to speak with Aditya Bashim and Matthew Bravante. They are both hydrogen analysts at BNEF. Note that BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and we have a full disclaimer at the end of the show. But now I want to talk about hydrogen with Adi and Matt. Let's have a listen. Adi, thank you for joining the show today. Hi, Dana. Great to be here. And Matt, thank you for joining as well. Thanks, Dana. Happy to be here. Great. So we have two members of our team that focus on hydrogen here to talk about electrolyzers. And for the uninitiated, that begs the question, what is an electrolyzer? An electrolyzer is, it's fundamentally a piece of equipment. It's a gas separating piece of equipment. So it, it takes water and electricity and separates that into two gases, hydrogen and oxygen. So it's a way to produce hydrogen gas, which we'll get into as a range of applications, but it's a way to produce hydrogen gas without any sort of residual carbon leaving the system. So it starts with a carbon-free source of hydrogen, water, and ends up with a hydrogen product that can be considered zero carbon emissions, depending on the electricity source. And the zero carbon emissions aspect is why hydrogen is likely to take off. Is that correct? Yeah, I think hydrogen, it's gone through many boom and bust phases of excitement, but fundamentally the thing that's exciting about it is it can be used as a molecule for chemical applications. It can be used as an energy molecule, but at the point of use, because it's a molecule with no embedded carbon. So when you think of conventional hydrocarbons, they're usually some amount of carbon molecules, some amount of hydrogen molecules. And when they're combusted or used in industry, there's usually some sort of oxidation reaction, which creates CO2, which is released in the atmosphere. And we all know that is a negative outcome with hydrogen. There is no carbon in the molecule. So when it's oxidized or used in some other chemical application, usually the byproduct is a bit of heat and some water. So much better for the world in terms of carbon question. What's interesting about hydrogen or low carbon hydrogen specifically is that as a molecule, it can replace uses where it's already being used today, where it's produced from fossil fuels. For example, as a feedstock for industry to produce ammonia in oil refineries, to produce methanol, all these chemicals that we really depend on. And also as a molecule to decarbonize other sectors where hydrogen is not used today, for example, in steel, where it can help reduce iron oxide to iron and be precursor to green steel. So an important molecule for the future would we think about decarbonizing. And what we're going to talk about today really is you've done this forward-looking market outlook on the electrolyzer market. And to use your own term, 
you say that the market is about to take off. What do you mean by that? And why is it about to take off? I guess there'll be a lot of this kind of onion to unpeel here. I guess in short, what is it that it has put us at this precipice or starting point? Our global electrolyzer outlook 2030 is really the hydrogen team's first attempt at assessing policies by region, looking at announced projects in aggregate, and looking at the economics of producing carbon hydrogen in certain locations, putting all of that knowledge together in one document and come up with an estimate for how many gigawatts of electrolyzer capacity we can see deployed by the end of this decade. Yeah, and I think the, to reference you, Onion, the first kind of thing to peel back and the real impetus around this report is just at least in my mind, it's the funding that we've seen come online for hydrogen in the past 12 to 18 months from very large federal or regional government levels. And I think when you think about the long term or the, the medium to long term out to 2030, a lot of that activity is going to be driven by public financing, public support. It's very analogous to the way wind and solar initially got their boost and climbed down the cost curves. We think we're seeing a similar type of incentives for hydrogen, and we think that will help hydrogen climb down the same sort of cost curves, get to a point where we're going from now where we hardly use what we would call renewable hydrogen or electrolytic hydrogen to a point where in 10 years we could be using a serious amount of this stuff. And it really starts with many million billions of dollars that we see coming across the world from different governments to help this technology get a footing. So in 10 years, the cost declines may be at a place where private industry is ready to take it over. If you are really going to draw that parallel between solar and wind and other renewables that have a really low levelized cost of electricity. So now that we're talking about hydrogen, the fact that policy plays such an important role in the next decade for it, where in the world, and I guess which governments are supporting it? So where we see the strongest policy support within our global electrolyzer outlook is within Europe, uh, US and China, like the biggest markets leading our own hydrogen will be these in terms of deployment. We can talk about each one individually, but I'll start with Europe. Europe really wants to become a hydrogen champion in terms of technology deployment, in terms of expertise it is developing within this sector and has been on the forefront of trying to set standards for hydrogen production and also setting the subsidies that they are leading. At the same time, China has been building manufacturing expertise within the sector, especially in electrolyzer technology. They have much larger factories already building much larger projects. So for comparison, we in Europe, the biggest project that we have today is about 20 megawatts in size. In comparison, in China, we already have about 150 megawatt project commissioned. And next year, we expect another 260 megawatts project to be commissioned. So in terms of size, China is already establishing projects that are an order of magnitude larger than what we're seeing in Europe. And the last one is the US, which I think Matt can comment on. Yeah, and just to bring in a global perspective on it, I think when we, at a high level, when we think about how these governments subsidize hydrogen. There's a couple different ways to do it. In China, it's very much a heavy hand of government approach. Having big industrial users of hydrogen adopt low carbon practices to kind of hit their emissions peak by 2030 that the national government wants to hit. In the US, you see a very different approach. It's pretty much all on the supply side. Um, there was recently passed as a part of the Inflation Reduction Act, a hydrogen production tax credit, the first ever hydrogen production tax credit in the world which is just going to make hydrogen extremely cheap to produce in the States. And then it'll kind of be up to the demand side to figure out, okay, now we have this cheap hydrogen, what are we going to use it for? And then you see in Europe, which, you know, Addy can talk about in much greater detail, 
kind of a hybrid approach where there's going to be fiscal incentives on the production side. There's probably going to be some element of demand side incentives for the use of hydrogen, but really kind of trying to balance the approach. In the U.S. Um, specifically, and in North America, Canada's taking a, looks like Canada's going to take a very similar approach, but it's really a supply side story driven by low economics. So the production tax credit that the U.S. just passed is going to make, without any other subsidies you know, coming online in other regions, is going to make the U.S. the cheapest place to produce hydrogen in the entire world through 2032 when the tax credit expires. So we think there's, there was very little activity in the U.S. before this. Europe has been signaling for a few years now that they had very strong hydrogen ambitions. China's much the same. In the U.S., it wasn't, it was a pretty quiet market. And then seemingly out of nowhere, really out of the last 12 months, we've gotten this hydrogen production tax credit out of the Biden administration, which really changes the game in terms of levelized costs of hydrogen. And then in terms of what you can do with it as an energy molecule or chemical molecule when you have it at such a low price. What's really interesting right now in Europe is Europe and in European industry is now looking at the US and the Inflation Reduction Act. And seeing that as a huge opportunity to deploy capacity within the U.S. And now using that as a way to justify more subsidies within Europe. So there's very much a race going on or like people, the industry is making it a race of like who has the better framework to deploy hydrogen projects. So both industries are currently learning from each other, which is interesting in terms of what, what will come out of this. Yeah, and it's very much like, a, I mean... I don't know if we go so far as call it a competition. It's very much like who has the most funding, who has the best funding, you know, where do the project developers want to go? Where does the capital that's going to deploy this stuff want to go? And it's kind of been a, but five months ago, it was all in Europe and the inflation reduction happens. And we're talking to folks in Europe who are quite jealous and see a lot of capital moving to the U.S. So it's very much a game of tag here between the U.S. and the EU in terms of public dollars and public support. Well, in a forward-looking race for cost declines in terms of hydrogen production, but what's it going to cost in order to drive that? And I guess how much money has been committed to be spent on driving the cost down? So we track this every six months as part of a hydrogen market outlook. Globally, we're now seeing as of June this year, we're seeing about $126 billion committed in funding for hydrogen or to which hydrogen projects can apply. So this includes both direct subsidies to the hydrogen industry or technology neutral funds for climate protection in some sense where hydrogen projects can also apply. In terms of where we see this funding being split out, the US and European Union are re really leading within this funding. Whereas European Union funding is capped by a budget, the US doesn't necessarily have a budget. And Matt can definitely speak to that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. I, and we can, when we get into kind of analysis behind the report and kind of how we set our outlook here, we used a lot of the publicly available information from the government, mainly how much money they thought they were going to spend. Some of the systems are a finite pool of money. So the government says we're going to get an example in the US is the infrastructure bill is going to give $8 billion to projects. And really the only variable you can play with when setting an outlook like this is how cheap is the equipment to produce the hydrogen because you get $8 billion to build it and whatever that costs to do per unit of, of capital cost, and that's how much hydrogen you get. But then there are other buckets like the production tax credit where there's a set of rules that a project developer has to adhere to around wage requirements, around life cycle emissions of the hydrogen production system. But if you qualify for those rules, you get the tax credit. And, and the federal government has released their estimations on how much they think it will cost them. We actually think it's going to be a bit more expensive than they're anticipating, but it's really 
however many people want to come get it and adhere to the rules is going to be the final number that gets deployed financially speaking. So there's a bit of that in, in the US and around the world, and it'll, it'll certainly be interesting to see how accurate some of these forecasts from the budget offices of these various governments end up being. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, because hydrogen requires an energy source in order to make it, and I know we could spend time talking about the whole color wheel and all of the different colors associated with the different fuel sources, but let's actually instead talk about exactly what it is that we want to get to, renewables. If we're going to make hydrogen from renewables in the U.S., in China, in Europe, anywhere in the world, is the amount of renewables required in order to actually supply all of that energy coming online? Is that being considered as a part of this hydrogen development? Sure. I can give you some numbers around our global electrolyzer forecast that help frame this discussion. In our forecast that we've set based on policies across regions, we the hydrogen electrolyzer market grows from about two gigawatts of electrolyzers deployed by the end of this year to about 240 gigawatts cumulatively deployed by the end of this decade, by 2030. That's about over a hundredfold increase in installed capacity. All of these electrolyzers, as you say, will need electricity and likely renewable electricity. So we estimated these electrolyzers need about uh, 1,300 terawatt hours of electricity by 2030. 1,300 terawatt hours is about 4% of all global electricity demand. 
And this 4% number is pretty much the same as we see, for example, electric vehicles in NEO's economic transition scenarios, to put that into context. So we need to not only for electrifying vehicles, industry and so on, but also hydrogen production in the same order of magnitude. What's interesting about sort of the electricity side of things as well for electrolyzers is that this number varies quite a bit. So while it might be 4% in China or the US, it's about 11% of all the electricity produced in Europe and demanded in Europe will need to go to electrolyzers to deploy the capacity we see within Europe. And this electrolyzer capacity, if it comes from renewables, in a scenario where we assume that about half of this electrolyzer capacity's electricity supply is supplied by solar, we get to about 670 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity. So both solar, onshore wind and offshore wind. And we compared that to BNF's solar and wind forecasts out to 2030. And what this number really means is that 16% of all the renewables that we estimate are built between now and 2030 would need to go to electrolyzers. So either they are built on top of our existing forecast or some of it is diverted away from existing uses for that electricity. Wow, that is a huge amount of additional electricity that needs to be developed for this use. But then I guess that brings me to the question, what is the potential for hydrogen to bring down emissions? Because hydrogen is oftentimes talked about as a fuel for the hard-to-abate space. And the things that we really don't have, at least today, viable solutions for decarbonizing their emissions. So do we have a view on what the potential is for emissions reduction with this investment? I think this is a really important point that our team makes a lot and is probably seen as quite controversial in the hydrogen Twitterverse or whatever public forum you're reading your hydrogen news. In the context of how many gigawatts of renewables we will need just to get to 2030, and if you look at the production numbers of hydrogen, we're still not even close to replacing the hydrogen that we use today, the carbon intensive hydrogen. So I think in terms of emissions reduction potential, the most important question to ask is what are we using the hydrogen for? And is that the best use of the hydrogen from an emissions reduction standpoint? And we've been speaking about this a long time. Our founder, Michael Liebrich famously has his hydrogen ladder, but there's a set of industries where we think hydrogen is going to be extremely critical to reducing the emissions intensity, things like chemical production and methanol and ammonia, fuels refining, both conventional oil refining and also sustainable fuel refining, like sustainable aviation fuels, renewable diesel, things such as that, where hydrogen's really going to be needed no matter what. And it's going to be a really high impact area if we can get low carbon or carbon-free hydrogen into those spaces. And then there are other places where, you know, you've definitely can use hydrogen. It's completely feasible, like road-based transport, things like power generation. Hydrogen, at least in the near term, is going to be a pretty precious resource. So can we incentivize hydrogen to go into the areas where it's going to make the largest emissions impact is a big question. And if we can do that, then yeah, there's quite a bit of potential to reduce emissions from these hard-to-abate sectors. I fully agree with Matt on this. It really depends on where that hydrogen is being used. To give you an example, based on our outlook, all these electrolyzers that we're saying are going to get built by 2030 produce about 25 million tons of green hydrogen by 2030. That's about a quarter, a bit more than a quarter, 27% of existing gray hydrogen demand, so hydrogen produced from fossil fuels. Current fossil fuel-based hydrogen emits about eight to 900 million tons of carbon emissions a year, I believe. So if the green hydrogen that, is, that we see being produced here is replacing gray hydrogen, you're looking at 
replacing about a quarter of the existing gray hydrogen emissions that could be reduced. Now, there are other uses where emissions could be higher, for example, in steel, because steel is currently produced using coal. So the emissions intensity of producing that is quite high. So the benefit of using hydrogen could be higher. But these are real choices and trade-offs that need to be made. And on the demand side, how much of it do you see actually going to fuels versus industry? That really depends. So I think in the near term, a lot of the mandates and regulation that is being set around encouraging the clean hydrogen industry to develop particularly is focused on industrial decarbonization. So that's where you see going into refineries, ammonia production, methanol production, and so on. At the same time, what you see a lot from private actors as well is a push for using hydrogen as transport fuels. Here we see really see the big potential in heavy-duty transport. So think about ships, planes, and some very heavy trucks that go very long distances and so on. There is some push for that. For example, in Europe, as much as they want to decarbonize industry, at the same time, there are mandates being put in place to decarbonize a small percentage of transport as well. But I think especially because in industry right now, hydrogen in the existing use cases is a drop-in replacement. So ideally, you can take out the gray hydrogen and use the green hydrogen in your existing processes without changing much of the equipment. For fuels, you will need to build separate plants to produce them in the first place. So for example, when we talk about fuels particularly, the way we're seeing hydrogen being used in ships and planes is not as pure hydrogen, but as methanol or ammonia or kerosene that is produced synthetically from green hydrogen with a carbon source. And for that, we need production plants that actually produce these fuels as well. So let's talk a little bit about technology. There are a couple different technologies out there for hydrogen production. Which ones are emerging as the front runner or is it too early to tell? I think we could talk about an onion, there are so many layers to the technology map of hydrogen technologies. But I think in its simplest form, the two most common technologies we often talk about are electrolytic pathways. So that's using electrolyzer technologies and some sort of power source. And then what we define as thermochemical pathways, which most commonly is the reformation of methane and steam or is the restoration of methane in, in absence of just normal air. But Within those two technologies, there's a subset of technologies. So on the electrolytic side, there's really two electrolyzer technologies vying for dominance. There's line technologies and PEM technologies, a proton exchange membrane technologies. And we track these as, as an input to our market outlook and other things. And I think the story really is still kind of a toss up in most parts of the world. So if you exclude China, which you know is a pretty big market to exclude, but if you exclude China from our latest market outlook, it's roughly a 50-50 split between PEM technologies and alkaline technologies in terms of which electrolyzers developers are choosing to procure. But China is such a large market and they have such a dominant alkaline industry already that when you aggregate all the numbers, it looks like alkaline is really the dominant technology. Or on the methane reformation side, there's really two technologies vying for dominance, steam methane reformation and autothermal reformation. There are two processes that are quite similar. They have a couple quirks that are different that we can get into, but we're actually seeing a lot of technology developers or project developers not making a call, a lot of unknown projects to date, but out of the projects that are announced, we see autothermal reformation leading the way. So it's still, I would say, just thinking about the market as a whole, it's still probably too early to call which technologies are going to dominate. They'll probably 
each have some success in their own right, but that's the market as we're seeing it right now. And within our forecast, the way we see this developing at the moment is that very likely within China, alkaline dominates and continues to dominate production capacity. In Europe and the US, we'll see an even split between PEM, proton exchange membrane technology and alkaline technology at the same time. So because China is such a dominant market, as Matt already said, until 2025, we see about 70% of capacity globally being alkaline electrolyzers. And from then on, the share of alkaline slowly drops to about 60% until 2030. Still the dominant technology, but you can see how proton exchange membrane technology is already making inroads in that by the end of this decade and it's taking up a larger and larger market share. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So even with the right policy environment, you definitely have private companies that are building a lot of this technology and deploying it. So on the supply side, what are some of the key names that we should know? What are the companies that are doing this? There's definitely already established companies, manufacturing companies, who are looking into electrolyzers as a new business area. These are, for example, in Europe, Siemens Energy, which produces other technologies like gas turbines already, but also now is getting into the business of producing electrolyzers, particularly proton exchange membrane electrolyzers at scale. In the U.S., you have the same thing with companies like Cummins, who produce other equipment, but are now coming into the electrolyzer business. Same with, again, ThyssenKrupp and others, like big established manufacturers who are now looking at the electrolyzer business. At the same time, you now have emerging pure play hydrogen players within this, which 
do nothing else other than electrolyzers and maybe some refueling stations. These are your NELs of the world. So NEL in Nor Norway, your ITM power in the UK, your plug power in the US, which also does other slightly other business, but mostly focused on producing electrolyzers and fuel cells. So really focused on the hydrogen industry as a whole. The last players I'll add to what Addy just said is there are some folks on the demand side. So people who could either conventionally use hydrogen as a drop-in replacement for industrial applications or see a pathway to using hydrogen in their business model in some way, really leaning in and trying to develop a hydrogen business for themselves. This is like mining company in Australia, Fortescue Future Industries. And if you think of conventional energy players, oil players, like the Exxons and Chevrons of the world, you think of conventional gas producers, gas handlers. So the folks that make the carbon intensive hydrogen today, the air liquides, their products, the lens of the world. And then other folks, a lot of fertilizer companies getting into the ring, understanding that hydrogen is a major input to their process, maybe wanting to integrate a bit vertically up into the hydrogen production space. So it's a healthy combination of people producing the technology in the upstream, people in the downstream getting interested in understanding a bit more about how the changes are going to work and if there's any opportunity for their business in this low carbon transition. But it's a pretty good mix of companies up and down the supply chain, putting their hand up and getting interested. So putting myself in the shoes of someone in the supply chain and putting my corporate strategist hat on, if I'm working at one of these companies, what are some of the reasons I might be cautious and what are some of the barriers that may stand in the way of all of this growth that we're talking about? So yeah, if I was in that position, you can see that governments are setting out huge targets, a lot of ambition on producing hydrogen, and the projects are not yet taking off. Like very few final investment decisions in this space so far. And a lot of that is one, because a lot of the subsidies, particularly in Europe, for example, are announced, but haven't been given out yet or allocated yet. So for example, Europe is talking about contracts for difference mechanisms to really encourage commercial projects that not just are pilots and test facilities, but really commercial projects. Those subsidies are not available yet. They'll be available over the next year. A lot of that still needs to be figured out. So one is subsidy availability. The other one that both the US and Europe are trying to figure out is what actually counts as green hydrogen. It sounds as simple as it is, but we don't have a clear definition across the board of under what conditions can hydrogen be produced and be considered a green product. So that's not only the emissions threshold, which is being set by the US and Europe and other countries, but also how do I encourage more renewables deployment to overcome this gap and sort of not having enough renewables capacity to supply all these hydrogen production? How do I make sure that all these electrolyzers don't add too much additional demand on the electricity grid and so on? So what the Europe is trying to define now, the US is at the same point, is can I produce hydrogen from renewables if I'm still connected to the grid? Like under what conditions can I do that? Under what hour of the day can I do that? And so on. So that's really where a lot of the discussions are still going on and then we don't have a resolution yet. Yeah, Dana, we could spend a whole separate podcast just talking about this question. The question around grid connection, the time of use, additionality of renewables. These are really at the forefront of policymakers and developers in Europe. And in the States, it's a really important question. I think if I had to put my corporate strategy hat on, that'd probably be number one. And then number two is just the trickiest part of the hydrogen ecosystem right now is the midstream. So thinking about transport and storage, it's famously the lightest gas, the smallest gas. And it's really tricky to just put it in a pipeline or put it on a ship and get it to where it needs to go. Historically, 
Hydrogen is almost always produced at the point of use. So they have a big hydrogen production facility right next to the refinery or ammonia facility that's going to be used in. And that's because this midstream aspect is so tricky. And when you start to think about the variable production of hydrogen from solar or wind, so you're only producing it when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing, and you're feeding that into a system like a refinery ammonia facility that has high uptime requirements. The storage aspect gets really challenging. The transportation aspect of it gets really challenging if you want to put the renewables in one place and the electrolyzer or the hydrogen demand source in another. So I think when we get to thinking about the 10-year forecast and what's going to be reality over the next decade when this stuff really scales, it's really going to be a question of what are the smartest ways to move this stuff and what are the smartest places to use it considering the challenges around the midstream. This is why initially we as a team looking at this industry are seeing hydrogen production and demand being very closely located together. So we're thinking about big hydrogen hubs where hydrogen is produced on site and delivered to an industrial cluster right next door and where you overcome a lot of these issues around storage and transport, which need to be figured out at one point as well. And on the other hand, also take a lot of time to develop. It takes like three to seven to 10 years to develop a pipe, a new pipeline for hydrogen. So while that is being developed, we see a lot of these hydrogen production and demand being co-located. Because it's incredibly difficult to contain, is it not? Not only is it very light, but it can escape from a lot of different spaces quite easily. So the physical limitations and where we can store it and for how long are part of the restriction. Let's not sound too many alarms here. The hydrogen has been moved around in pipelines for decades. It's heavily understood. It's heavily utilized. So there's no like technological hurdles to getting to the point where we can figure out the midstream. I think okay. from a global trade perspective, you hear a lot of folks saying they're going to ship hydrogen from Australia to Europe or Canada to Europe or ship to Japan from South America. And those, there's a lot of head scratching to be done there. If you're shipping hydrogen to be used as hydrogen in any of those methods, it just adds so much cost. You have to liquefy it. You have to compress it and ship a very small amount of it. Or you can turn it into something like ammonia, which you know works if you're going to use it as ammonia in the final destination. But if you have to re-crack it back into hydrogen, the economics just really poor. So it's not so much a technological issue as, is, as it is an economic issue. But yeah, it's still one that we definitely need to figure out. And I guess the last thing I'll say, not to dampen the party too much, but Hydrogen itself is a gas with warming potential, and it doesn't make that big of a difference today. But if we come to this world in 2050 where we are using a lot of hydrogen, we will need to come up with strict control measures for leakage because we don't want to trade one greenhouse gas for another. And yeah, it'll, it'll definitely be a consideration moving forward. I'm seeing some parallels here, actually, with what you've just said regarding how we really think about natural gas. And in many respects, at one point in time, it was lauded as this much less carbon intensive energy source that provided tremendous flexible capacity for wind and solar when they weren't able to produce. But there's a lot of discussion now about actually phasing out natural gas use because of the emissions in the longer term. Do you think that hydrogen will have a similar trajectory or because of the places that it occupies in our energy and consumption space that where there really isn't a viable alternative that it won't? There's a lot of talk about comparing hydrogen to natural gas today. Fundamentally, what we're trying to say within our market outlooks and what we're seeing as well is that hydrogen will occupy some of the spaces where natural gas is used today, for example, in industry, but it would also not go into certain sectors where we don't think it makes sense to use hydrogen. We have better technologies, like for example, for home heating. In that sense, the hydrogen industry will be smaller than the natural gas industry, and you won't need to use all that equipment. 
fundamentally at this point, and the industries that we're talking about where hydrogen is crucial, we don't really have an alternative to using decarbonized hydrogen. There might be some innovation coming along the way. And we're seeing that, for example, in steel already, where maybe hydrogen will be used and is probably the most mature technology to use to decarbonize steel production. But we're also seeing new applications and new innovation in steel where you don't need hydrogen as a feedstock anymore at all. These are less mature and could come up. So there's still some open question marks about it. But generally speaking, we tend to focus on the sectors where we don't have an alternative to using clean hydrogen today. Dana, I think I'm going to come and respond to your initial question with a, a very firm no. I feel like it would be very incorrect and quite controversial to let's say our view is that we think there's hydrogen and natural gas will have a similar trajectory. I think fundamentally they're, they're different things. There's a lot of parallels. You could see the same sort of concern about upstream leakage that you see in natural gas. Hydrogen's obviously used or could be used in a lot of places where natural gas is used today. But the development of hydrogen is for a fundamentally different pursuit and it's carbon free at the point of view. So I think there are two very different things. The overarching reason why our team exists at BNAFs and why folks are seriously thinking about hydrogen is the truth remains, if we want to get to net zero as quickly as possible, we are going to need energy molecules to do some things. We aren't going to need energy molecules to do nearly as much as they do today, but net zero by 2050 looks almost impossible just using electrons. So hydrogen will undertake some of the roles that natural gas did, probably won't have as large of an energy footprint as natural gas has today. That's not what we're expecting for it to be, but it will be a pretty critical energy molecule that is carbon-free that can help get us the last way there in terms of net zero in a few of these really difficult sectors. So Matt, you already gave me an idea for a future podcast. So thank you so much for that because I'm always on the search for what the next Switched On is going to be. And for today, Addy, Matt, thank you so much for joining and explaining what we're thinking about when we think about the electrolyzer market and where hydrogen is going to go in the future. Thanks for having us, Dana. Thanks, Dana. I look forward to coming back and talking more hydrogen soon. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.